Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. New York, June 22nd, 1804. Sir, Mr. Van Ness has this evening reported to me verbally that you refused to answer my last letter that you consider the course I have taken as intemperate and unnecessary, and some other conversation which it is improper that I should notice. My request to you was in the first instance proposed in a form the most simple in order that you might give to the affair that course to which you might be induced by your temper and your knowledge of facts. I relied with unsuspecting faith that from the frankness of a soldier and the candor of a gentleman I might expect an ingenuous declaration, that if as I had reason to believe you had used expressions derogatory to my honor, you would have had the spirit to maintain or the magnanimity to retract them, and that, if from your language injurious inferences had been improperly drawn, sincerity and delicacy would have pointed out to you the propriety of correcting errors, which might thus have been widely diffused. Thus, sir, you have invited the course I am about to pursue, and now by your silence impose it upon me. If, therefore, your determinations are final, of which I am not permitted to doubt, Mr. Van Ness is authorized to communicate my further expectations either to yourself or to such friend as you may be pleased to indicate. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, Aaron Burr. The tensions between Vice President Aaron Burr and former Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton have been building throughout the course of 1804 due to Burr's unsuccessful gubernatorial bid. But in the summer of that year, they would reach a fever pitch and have devastating consequences for both men. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to James Early for providing the intro quote for this episode. I've had the pleasure of knowing James for years through the American History Fanatics group on Facebook, and in the time that I've known him, James has ventured into podcasting through various collaborations with Scott Rank of the History Unplugged podcast. In addition to the Presidential Fight Club series, James and Scott have covered the key battles of various American conflicts, including the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Their latest series is just starting, where they're looking at the key battles of World War I. I'll post links to all of these series on the show notes page for this episode, or you can search for History Unplugged on your podcast app of choice. Before we get to the main event, let's take a moment to check in on the grieving president who, as we discussed last episode, lost his daughter, Maria Jefferson Epps, due to complications from childbirth. Due to Jefferson's being away for such long stretches during her childhood, Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone asserts that his relationship with Maria was not nearly as close as that which he had with his older daughter, Martha. Still, we can see an example of his affection for her in a letter from February 1800, where he wrote to her that, quote, I felt perpetual gratitude to heaven for having given me, in you, a source of so much pure and unmixed happiness. Malone notes that, after Maria's death, quote, so far as the existing record shows, he, i.e. Jefferson, revealed his grief in words to very few. 
A notable exception to this is that he would, during this time, briefly resume a correspondence with the former First Lady, Abigail Adams. Though the politics of the time had divided the Adamses from Jefferson, Abigail would, as discussed back in episode 2.26, the episode on Adams's post-presidency, write to the grieving Jefferson to express her sorrow at his loss, as well as her own tender affections for Maria, who the Adamses had welcomed in London as she traveled to join her father in Paris in the 1780s. As we covered that brief and ultimately unsuccessful attempt at reconciliation in the Adams post-presidency episode, I won't repeat it here. But suffice it to say that the personal and political realms continue to fold into one another in the president's life. In addition to the challenges presented to Jefferson personally, the president whose administration had brought about the triumph of the Louisiana Purchase was in 1804 finding more turbulence on the diplomatic front. As discussed in episode 3.19, the arrival of the new British minister to the U.S., Anthony Mary, had not gone smoothly, and Mary very quickly developed a disdain for Jefferson and his supporters. Mary, however, was not alone in the diplomatic corps in Washington to bear ill feelings towards the administration. As discussed in episode 3.11, Spanish minister to the U.S., Carlos Martinez de Erujo y Tacón, the first Marquess of Casa Erujo, had originally seen Jefferson's accession to the presidency as a possible turning point in U.S.-Spanish relations, as he had not enjoyed a good relationship with either the Washington or Adams administrations. Despite his best efforts to ingratiate himself to Jefferson, Irujo often found himself and his government time and again running defense against American ambitions. The Louisiana Purchase was the latest insult. Irujo in Washington had lost confidence in the administration, and hearing rumors that the Spanish government had sent an order to officials in New Orleans to block the transfer of the colony to the French, who were then in turn to hand it over to the Americans, felt that regardless, the Americans would take the colony by force. Even if Louisiana was handed over peacefully, he was sure that West Florida was next on their list to acquire, and the Spanish minister sent orders to New Orleans, West Florida, and East Florida, urging them to resist any American efforts at an unlawful assumption of possession. Given this attitude, one would think that the Spanish minister would have been up in arms as the Mobile Act, discussed in episode 3.20, was introduced and debated in Congress in early 1804, as this act had a section that, quote, authorized the president, whenever he should deem such action expedient, to set up a separate revenue district centering on the Bay and River of Mobile, though by that point, it was known that the Spanish government's position, which was supported by the French government, was that West Florida was not a part of the Louisiana Purchase. In fact, it would be two weeks after the act was signed into law by Jefferson before the Spanish minister made his way to Secretary of State James Madison's office to lodge his protest. Though I have not seen an explanation given as to why there was a delay, I do have a theory, but I ask you to have your grains of salt at the ready, for this is just a theory and much more research would need to be done before anything conclusive could be said. As discussed in episode 3.19, after the Marys felt that they were insulted by both Jefferson and Madison at dinners each had hosted, in which a less formal, pell-mell style of seating for dinner was followed, they decided to refuse invitations to dinners hosted by other Democratic Republicans and instead started associating more with Federalists. In the aggrieved Rujo, they also found a new ally. Mary biographer Malcolm Lester asserts that, quote, although Mary was critical of Arujo for having acquiesced in the practice of pell-mell, 
and despite his distrust of the Don, whom he had known since his service in Spain and considered an insignificant and unsafe character, he and the Spanish minister began to act in concert against administrative innovations in diplomatic etiquette. As noted by Lester, quote, By the middle of January, Washington society had been turned upside down by the etiquette controversy. The administration attempted to clarify matters by sending the quote-unquote canons of etiquette, which Jefferson and his cabinet had drafted, to Mary on January 12th. But Mary simply retorted that this should have been communicated to him as soon as he assumed his office, not months later. The administration then turned to intermediaries to try to set up a private meeting between Jefferson and Mary to resolve their issues, but to no avail. Given the speed by which information is communicated in the early 21st century, it is hard for us to imagine, but in early 19th century Washington, D.C., a city in name only, as it was sparsely populated and still very much a work in progress, it is hard to understate the importance of word of mouth in communicating information. Given that Mary and Arujo were on the outs with the leaders of the Democratic-Republican Party, it could have been that they did not hear the details of the Mobile Act in Chiloa's printed in the paper. And indeed, when Arujo went to meet with Madison on March 5th, he is described as, quote, storming into Madison's office, brandishing a local newspaper. Whatever the case, now that Arujo knew what was going on, he was furious and, quote, described this act of Congress as an atrocious libel and an insulting usurpation of the rights of his king. Jefferson and his cabinet, anticipating the backlash, had already developed a plan of action to address this. But as the plans had not been finalized and made public yet, Madison could only give reassurances to the Spanish minister, though, of course, he also wasn't willing to concede American claims to West Florida. Finally, on May 30, 1804, Jefferson put the immediate matter to rest with a proclamation in which he established a revenue district of Mobile, but he made the port of entry Fort Stoddard, which was located upriver on the Mobile River in the Mississippi Territory, and asserted that this new district was limited to, quote, shores, waters, inlets, creeks, and rivers lying within the boundaries of the United States. The words starting with within were emphasized on the copy of the proclamation that was sent to Congress later in the year and it was enforced by the administration as encompassing waterways in the Mississippi Territory, not in West Florida. Though this did mollify the Spanish minister and his government for the time being, Irujo's opinion of the administration did not improve. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Beyond just the disagreement over etiquette, matters of policy would also find the Jefferson administration and British Minister Mary in opposition. In all their initial meetings upon Mary's arrival, Secretary of State Madison brought up the issue of impressment, which was a practice of the British Royal Navy to force American sailors into service on British ships. Impressment had been a point of contention in Anglo-American relations since the Washington administration, and though the Peace of Amiens had provided a brief respite, it was clear that Napoleon intended to challenge the British on the seas, and the British would likely turn to impressment as an expedient to meet the challenge. From the British point of view, Mary could not understand why it was given such emphasis by the Americans, 
But for the U.S., beyond just the injustice of American citizens being forced into service against their will, and yes, this is a hypocritical position for a nation that still permitted the enslavement of individuals. Beyond that, impressment was seen as a deliberate attempt by the British, quote, to injure the rapidly growing American merchant marine. In the years between 1800 and 1805, the tonnage of American vessels engaged in foreign trade increased by 35%, and the value of the export of American goods in U.S. currency had increased in African and Asian markets during Jefferson's term of office. While continuing the conversation with Marion Washington, Jefferson and Madison decided that it also needed to be brought up directly with the British government, and for that, they turned to a trusted diplomatic agent in Europe, U.S. Minister to Britain, James Monroe. On January 5, 1804, Madison wrote to Monroe giving him detailed instructions on the convention that Jefferson wished to be negotiated with the British, which was, quote, limited to the cases of impressments of our seamen, of blockades, of visiting and searching our vessels, of contraband of war, and of the trade of hostile colonies, with a few other cases affecting our maritime rights. In order to get British support for the convention, the administration was willing to include, quote, a provision for the surrender of deserting seamen and soldiers, and for the prevention of contraband supplies to her, i.e. Britain's, enemies. Part of the reason for the diplomatic push on both sides of the Atlantic on the impressment issue is that the administration was feeling pressure to act. In late December 1803 and January 1804, bills were introduced in both the House and the Senate to protect American seamen from the threat of impressment. The Senate bill in particular was so stringent that Mary went to Madison to complain and warned that, should it pass, quote, any negotiation with Britain concerning impressment would cease. While many, including Mary, had their suspicions that the Senate bill had its origins with Jefferson, especially as Jefferson's close ally and one-time substitute Secretary of the Navy, Senator Samuel Smith of Maryland, had introduced the bill, in fact, Jefferson and Madison were convinced that diplomacy, rather than legislative threats, was the way to go to seek an amiable resolution. While one Monroe biographer has offered that Madison's letters to Monroe during this time reflect an impatience or frustration with Monroe, in reading through the letters myself and examining other accounts, I don't see that reflected. Rather, one gets a sense of the pressure that Madison, and by extension Jefferson, was under to come to a diplomatic solution. As Madison noted in a letter to Monroe in late December 1803, quote, the public mind is rising to a state of high sensibility regarding the impressment issue, and he felt that only a negotiated settlement with Britain would quell the public unrest and the hasty congressional legislation that threatened to worsen relations with Britain. Unfortunately, Monroe was dealing with a ministry that, as we discussed last episode, was under threat in the early months of 1804. While Monroe's relations with Addington and his government were cordial, the British government was little inclined to talk about specific issues. When Pitt assumed the role of Prime Minister once more, Monroe had little time to cultivate a relationship with this new government before he received a new mission. On February 18, 1804, the cabinet met to discuss the Florida situation, and on April 15th, as instructed by Jefferson, Secretary of State Madison wrote to Monroe asserting that, as the government expected that his work on negotiating impressment with the British, quote, will no longer require your presence in Britain, the president thinks it proper that you should now proceed to Madrid and, in conjunction with Mr. Pinckney, open a negotiation on the important subjects remaining to be adjusted with the Spanish government. We'll have to catch up with Monroe's negotiations with the Spanish in a future episode as, looking at my agenda, it looks like we've got another big topic to talk about. Let's see. What is it now? Oh, yes, 
Jefferson's appointment of his first Supreme Court justice. What's that you say? Are you ever going to get to the duel? Okay, okay, you've been patient enough. The Supreme Court will wait as we turn our attention to the chain of events that would lead to Weehawken, New Jersey, on the fateful day of July 11, 1804. Neither Vice President Aaron Burr nor former Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton were strangers to the practice of dueling. Indeed, as noted by historian John Sedgwick, quote, highly publicized duels enjoyed something of a revival in New York City at the turn of the 19th century, owing largely to the combustible mix of politics and the press, and a cadre of gentlemen willing to kill or die for their reputations. Indeed, with Hamilton, we've already seen two instances, recounted in episodes 1.27 and 2.6, where he nearly ended up in a duel. In the latter instance, Burr had actually played a role in helping to resolve the conflict before it reached the dueling ground. Indeed, though by July 1804, Hamilton is documented as having been involved in 10 quote-unquote affairs of honor, as duels were dubbed, none of them at that point had gotten to where pistols were drawn and fired. Unfortunately for the Hamilton family, and as mentioned in episode 3.12, Alexander's son Philip had in fact gotten to that point and met his end from injuries sustained in a duel in November 1801. Burr, meanwhile, had participated in a duel with Hamilton's brother-in-law, John Barker Church, in 1799. Though they had, in fact, fired off a round at one another before the matter was considered settled, both men walked away unscathed from that duel, something that Hamilton had witnessed in person, serving in that instance as Church's second. For both Hamilton and Burr, however, the duel on July 11th would prove to be the most infamous in both of their lives and legacies. As Sedgwick wrote of both men after the New York gubernatorial election of 1804, quote, Opposed in so many things, Hamilton and Burr were united in the recognition that by 1804, their honor was about all they had left. The support that New York Federalists had given to Burr in that election had proven just how little influence Hamilton had in the party or in politics in general. Burr's loss, meanwhile, was evidence of his fall from grace in public life. He had gone from potentially being the third president of the United States at the beginning of 1801 to suffering the largest defeat to that point in a gubernatorial election in his home state three years later. Burr attempted to put on a brave face, writing to his daughter Theodosia that, quote, election is lost by a great majority, tant mieux, which translates as, quote, so much the better. But Burr's reaction when he learned of some of what Hamilton had said about him when it was printed in the New York Evening Post seems to indicate that he felt otherwise. During the course of the gubernatorial election, Hamilton had dined at the home of Judge John Taylor in Albany, and Hamilton had made blunt denouncements of Burr during the course of the dinner, which were recorded by another guest, Dr. Charles Cooper, and recounted in a letter which was then excerpted and printed in the Post. The editor of the Post and Hamilton ally, William Coleman, along with printing Dr. Cooper's allegations, also printed a letter from Hamilton's father-in-law, former Senator Philip Schuyler, asserting that Hamilton could not have made the statements alleged by Cooper as he had promised to remain out of the race. Dr. Cooper, not appreciating being called a liar, wrote another letter in which he asserted that he had, in fact, been, quote, unusually cautious in his account of Hamilton's remarks at the dinner at Judge Taylor's, for, in fact, he, quote, could detail a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr. This letter was published in the Albany Register on April 24th. 
For some reason, it took a while for a copy of this issue of the Register to make its way into Burr's hands. But when it did on June 18th, the vice president was determined that Hamilton would answer for the insult. The two had been at odds politically and personally since Burr had defeated Hamilton's father-in-law for his Senate seat in 1792. But to that point, they had managed to avoid out-and-out confrontation. On June 18th, Burr wrote to Hamilton personally, including a copy of Dr. Cooper's letter published in the Albany Register, asking him specifically about the, quote, still more despicable opinion part, and demanding, quote, a prompt and unqualified acknowledgement or denial of the use of any expressions which could warrant the assertions of Dr. Cooper. The letter was delivered by Burr's associate, William Peter Van Ness. Hamilton responded with a letter of his own on the 20th, asserting that, quote, The more I have reflected on your letter, the more I have become convinced that I could not, without manifest impropriety, make the avowal or disavowal which you seem to think necessary. He then went on a legalistic tangent about how the meaning and degrees of the word despicable vary person by person, and that he could not answer for, quote, the inferences, which may be drawn by others, from whatever I may have said of a political opponent in the course of a 15 years competition. This approach may have worked to get Hamilton out of other duels, but Burr was not having it. He replied to Hamilton the next day, asserting that, quote, having considered it, i.e. Hamilton's response, attentively, I regret to find in it nothing of that sincerity and delicacy which you profess to value. Political opposition can never absolve gentlemen from the necessity of a rigid adherence to the laws of honor and the rules of decorum. I neither claim such privilege nor indulge it in others. He pressed Hamilton again to answer for whether or not he might have said something in the past which would have caused someone to have ridden such as Dr. Cooper had. When Van Ness delivered the second letter to Hamilton at his office and told him he would come back that evening for a reply, Hamilton at that point got an associate involved, a fellow lawyer named Nathaniel Pendleton. At Pendleton's advice that he hold his ground, Hamilton drafted another letter for Pendleton to deliver to Van Ness. However, when Pendleton read Hamilton's letter, he realized that the tone was certain to end up with the two facing off with pistols, so he held it back. When Van Ness returned for Hamilton's reply in the evening, he was told that Hamilton had no answer for Burr's latest letter. Burr biographer Milton Lomas notes that, in the course of this conversation, Van Ness had offered up an opportunity. Quote, Had Hamilton at this point denied maligning Burr's honor in the presence of Dr. Cooper, the duel might have been averted. Instead, he stuck by his talking points in his letter of the 20th, which had already proven unsatisfactory to the vice president. Thus, the next day, Burr wrote the letter that provided this episode's opening quote, which he ended by telling his adversary that, quote, Thus, sir, you have invited the course I am about to pursue, and now, by your silence, impose it upon me. Over the next few days, as seconds often did, Pendleton and Van Ness talked matters through and tried to come up with a peaceful resolution to the conflict. Pendleton offered up a quote-unquote memorandum detailing Hamilton's account of the dinner at Judge Taylor's and an assurance that the guest had refrained from any personal insults on Burr's quote, conduct or character, but rather had remarked on their opposition to his quote-unquote political principles. As Hamilton's account was rather vague, Van Ness pushed for more assurances that none of the guests had accused Burr of quote, dishonorable conduct and Hamilton acquiesced in providing those assurances. On the 26th, however, 
Burr sent word that Hamilton's memorandum and assurances were not good enough. First, Burr questioned why Hamilton was able to give such assurances at this point when he had previously stated that he could not answer for Dr. Cooper's recollections. Meanwhile, Hamilton himself, in his letter on the 20th, had opened up the door for Burr to question whether in the course of their quote-unquote 15-year competition, Hamilton had ever impugned his character. Was this an escalation of the conflict? Yes. Again, from Sedgwick, quote, Burr was enraged, and now nothing would appease him. The original inquiry related to the Albany dinner had now expanded to cover all of Hamilton's conversations about Burr ever. It was an impossible request, calculated to antagonize, as Burr surely knew. On June 27th, the negotiations between the seconds ended with an agreement that the two principals, Burr and Hamilton, would meet on the dueling ground at Weehawken, New Jersey, on July 11th for their quote-unquote interview. Why Weehawken, you ask? Well, for the simple fact that it was out of the way, and though duels were just as illegal in New Jersey as they were in New York, it was less likely that any of the four would be caught by authorities for participating in this final quote-unquote interview in the structured process of the Affair of Honor. As noted by Ron Chernow, quote, Though fought in secrecy and seclusion, duels always turned into highly public events that were covered afterward with rapt attention by the press. In the weeks between the end of negotiations and the actual duel, it seems like the matter was kept quiet, and all four men acted as if nothing was amiss. Hamilton proceeded to represent clients in suits pending before the New York Supreme Court on July 6th, while Burr held party in honor of his absent daughter Theodosia's birthday at his home, Richmond Hill. Both men attended the 4th of July banquet hosted by the Society of the Cincinnati, though Burr left early while Hamilton hopped up on a table and started singing. Both Burr and Hamilton, however, were making arrangements just in case. The day before the duel, Burr wrote to Theodosia to apprise her of his financial situation. Quote, My estate will just about pay my debts and no more. The only thing that he had to leave her was his, quote, private letters and papers, which he asked her to burn any that would, quote, if by accident be made public, would injure any person. This is more particularly applicable to the letter of my female correspondence. Though Hamilton would, in his own accounting of his financial situation, seem to present, quote, a comfortable net worth. In fact, his family would find themselves saddled with debts. Hamilton also prepared a statement for the public to justify his participation in the duel. He also revealed his plan, quote, to reserve and throw away my first fire, and I have thoughts even of reserving my second fire, and thus giving a double opportunity to Colonel Burr to pause and to reflect. As noted by Chernow, quote, the wording here is significant. Hamilton assumed that Burr would have two such opportunities. Thus, Hamilton would have to signal to Burr his intention to waste his shot. Hamilton had, in fact, given the same advice to his son prior to his fateful duel a few years prior. The problem, however, was that Philip had not really indicated his plan to his opponent. Instead, just not, quote, raising his pistol at the command to fire, while his opponent, after a brief delay, did in fact fire and hit Philip. On the afternoon of July 9th, the seconds finalized plans for the duel. Pendleton unsuccessfully attempted to convince Hamilton the evening of the 10th to not throw away his first shot, but Hamilton asserted that, quote, it is the effect of a religious scruple and does not admit of reasoning. It is useless to say more on the subject. 
as my purpose is definitely fixed. He did assure his second, though, that he would fire into the air to let Burr know his intentions. There have been questions as to whether Hamilton at this point was suicidal, depressed, and or resigned to die in the same manner as his beloved son Philip. But this theory doesn't seem to hold up when one considers that on the 10th, Hamilton set up a meeting with a client for 10 a.m. the next morning. Again, from Chernow, quote, Far from being suicidal, Hamilton planned to go straight from the early morning duel to his office to catch up on work. Hardly the behavior of a depressed man meditating suicide. At 5 a.m., as arranged by the seconds, Hamilton's party and Burr's party departed from separate docks on the island of Manhattan with both, quote, rowed by four weaponless oarsmen whose identities would remain secret, sparing them any legal liability. The pistols were secreted in a leather case so that the boatmen could later swear under oath that they had never set eyes on any guns. Hamilton's party included Dr. David Hosack, a physician, quote, expected to be close enough to the duel to heed cries for help, but far enough away to profess ignorance, if necessary, of the whole transaction. Burr and Van Ness arrived at the dueling ground first, at 6.30 a.m., quote, and began to sweep away underbrush and other debris from the dueling space. Hamilton and Pendleton arrived shortly before the top of the hour, and at 7 a.m. promptly, the Vice President of the United States and the former Secretary of the Treasury found themselves face-to-face on the dueling ground. From Chernow, quote, both men followed strict etiquette and exchanged salutations, while their seconds, quote, marked out 10 paces for the duel and drew lots to choose positions for their principles. Though Hamilton won the right to choose the more advantageous position, he opted to give the advantage to Burr, possibly an attempted cue to his opponent that he did not intend for this encounter to be fatal. In a move that is at times cited by those who argue that Hamilton was suffering from depression over the loss of his son, Hamilton, as the one challenged in the duel, had been able to choose the weapons used. He had chosen flintlock pistols and had brought, quote, the same pistols used by Philip Hamilton and George Eaker in 1801. Chernow explains this by stating that this choice was due to his need, quote, to confine knowledge of the duel to a tiny circle of confidants, and the pistols were owned by Hamilton's brother-in-law, the same one who had faced off against Burr. Hamilton himself did not own a set of dueling pistols. After Hamilton took a minute to do, quote, several sightings, something which Chernow notes might have misled Burr about his intentions, and put on his spectacles so that he could see better, the two were finally ready to face off. Burr later recounted that, quote, when he, i.e. Hamilton, stood up to fire, he caught my eye and quailed under it. He looked like a convicted felon. Pendleton had been chosen by lot to supervise the duel, and thus, when they reached ten paces, he was the one who asked if they were ready, and then, when they both replied in the affirmative, he gave the standard command of present, which was the cue for them to lift their weapons and fire. As described by Sedgwick, quote, by the code, calmness in the face of annihilation was essential, even as they stood across from each other in a classic fencer's pose, right foot forward, body sideways, right shoulder up high over the chin. The better that way to narrow the profile and protect the vitals from a one-ounce ball of lead that would strike like a tiny cannonball at this distance. Both men wore heavy topcoats to obscure the contours of their bodies. It had to have been a singularly terrifying moment, but neither man is said to have betrayed any emotion as he stared the other one down. At Pendleton's command, both men lifted their pistols, and both men fired. 
Van Ness later insisted that Burr had not known of Hamilton's intent to throw away his first shot. Pendleton would insist later that Burr had fired first and that Hamilton's shot was, quote, the effect of an involuntary exertion of the muscles produced by a mortal wound. Both seconds did later attest that there was a four to five second delay in between the two shots, but there was no agreement to be had on who, in fact, had fired first. Regardless, the result was the same. Burr's shot had, in fact, hit its mark. Hamilton's abdomen above his right hip. Hamilton, as described by Chernow, quote, rose up on his toes, writhing violently and twisting slightly to the left before toppling headlong to the ground, from where he proclaimed, quote, I am a dead man. As the tale by Sedgwick, quote, the bullet had cracked through his ribs, shredded his lungs, and pierced his liver before lodging tight against his lower spine leaving him paralyzed all down his legs as blood pooled in his gut. At first, Dr. Hosack could not locate a pulse, but when he finally confirmed that Hamilton was still alive, he and Pendleton worked to get Hamilton to the rowboat. Burr, meanwhile, in order to avoid being recognized by Dr. Hosack or the oarsman, made a quick exit, though Pendleton later noted that, when the vice president realized what had happened, was, quote, expressive of regret. Burr waited at Richmond Hill for any news, and, not hearing any, wrote a note to Dr. Hosack the next afternoon asking after, quote, the present state of General H and of the hopes which are entertained of his recovery. The reality of the situation was grim. When the boat carrying Hamilton arrived back at the Manhattan dock, the injured man was taken to the mansion of one of Hamilton's friends, the banker William Bayard. Word quickly spread around the city as to what had happened, and a crowd gathered outside the Bayard home in a vigil. Surgeons from French ships anchored in the harbor were sent to the house to see what they could do to assist as they were, quote, specially trained in treating gunshot wounds. Dr. Hosack initially treated Hamilton with having him ingest weak wine and water, and the patient was in such pain that the doctor didn't dare to remove his bloody clothes. As the pain continued to subsist, Dr. Hosack gave him doses of laudanum. Meanwhile, Hamilton's wife Eliza arrived and, when told the situation, fell into a, quote, frantic grief. Eliza was roused from this, however, by Hamilton's admonition to her, quote, remember, my Eliza, you are a Christian. With his wife maintaining a solemn vigil over him, Eliza's sister Angelica, who it had been rumored may have had an affair with Hamilton, as discussed way back in episode 1.4, was also summoned, and she fell into a state of grief. Hamilton requested that the Episcopal Bishop of New York, the Reverend Benjamin Moore, be summoned to administer last rites, but Moore refused to give the dying man Holy Communion as he did not want to be seen as condoning dueling, and, as Hamilton was not a regular churchgoer, could not attest to his spiritual state. The Reverend John M. Mason, pastor of the Scotch Presbyterian Church and a close friend of Hamilton's, was then summoned to attest his character and righteousness. Hamilton asserted before Mason and those assembled that he too was opposed to the practice of dueling, and had not intended to kill Burr, and admitted freely that, quote, I am a sinner. I look to his, i.e., the Lord's, mercy. Under pressure from Mason and others, Bishop Moore finally relented and administered Holy Communion to Hamilton. The next day, Hamilton's children were allowed into the room to bid their father farewell, and after they left, various family members and friends, including former Senator Governor Morris, gathered to watch as he slowly slipped away. Morris at one point had to make his exit from the room as he professed that, quote, 
The scene is too powerful for me. Later recounting that, quote, his wife was almost frantic with grief, his children in tears, every person present deeply afflicted, the whole city agitated, every countenance dejected. Hamilton's thoughts, even towards the end, turn from the personal to the political, with the dying man asserting that, quote, if they break this union, they will break my heart. Finally, at 2 p.m. on July 12, 1804, less than a day and a half since his duel with the vice president, General Alexander Hamilton, the first secretary of the treasury, passed away, quote, gently, quietly, almost noiselessly. He was 49 years old. Through the three presidencies that we have covered to date in the narrative series, Alexander Hamilton has been a presence, if not a key player, since nearly the very beginning. His first mention was in episode 1.2. His importance in the history of the early republic, in numerous respects, is unquestioned. And he is a fascinating figure from that time period, whose life has been recounted by numerous biographers and historians over the centuries since his death. As Chernow describes him, quote, Hamilton was the supreme double threat among the founding fathers. At once thinker and doer, sparkling theoretician, and masterful executive. Even today, political commentators invoke the name of Hamilton and discuss his legacy, be it for better or worse. For my part, I'll admit that I have struggled with my own perceptions of Hamilton over the years. As we've seen in the podcast, he was far from perfect, as a person and as a politician. However, he also had his admirable qualities, and the financial system that he helped set up during the Washington administration was key to sustaining the new nation. While he was a key architect of the two-party system that developed during Washington's presidency, Hamilton was also willing to cross party lines when his ideals did not sync with the actions of the party. Despite the less-than-commendable parts of it, his life provides an example of how a person from humble beginnings could rise to become one of the key players in the United States government. Though he made erstwhile enemies, Hamilton also developed friendships and relationships over the years that would leave him with many passionate champions of his legacy. Hamilton will never be put on a pedestal, as has been the case of other founding fathers, but maybe his confessions about his faults are what have added to the continued interest in him long after his passing. His flaws make him human and thus relatable to us. Even if you don't like him, Hamilton is someone who, in all of his varied experiences in his 49 years, each of us can find something to which we can relate. We'll discuss the aftermath of Hamilton's demise and how it would further damage Vice President Burr's already tarnished reputation in our next episode. But for now, let's go ahead and draw this episode to a close. Special thanks again to James for providing the intro quote for this episode. As always, special thanks also to the itinerant band, for allowing us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this series. More information about the Itinerant Band, as well as the various podcast series that James has been a part of, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can also find information on the website about the various ways that you, yes, you, dear listener, can help to support this podcast. Should you wish to provide a one-time contribution, I do have a wish list of books for research available, or you can purchase products from the Hero Soap Company using the promo code PRESIDENCIES. If you'd like to pledge a monthly contribution, I do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash presidencies. The patrons of this podcast help to ensure that I'm able to continue putting out free content for all of you. So I'd like to send a special shout out and thank you to Matthew, Michelle, Jeremy, 
Kara, Howard, and Scott. The support that they and so many over the years have shown has been amazing, and I am forever grateful. There are also no-cost ways to support the podcast that are critical to helping to further this project. You can rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and any other podcast platforms that allow listeners to rate and review. Special thanks to Shira, host of the Legendary Africa podcast, who recently left a five-star review entitled A Must Listen on Apple Podcast. Her review reads as follows, quote, This is a brilliant podcast for history lovers, and especially those passionate about the history of the United States of America. The host really does a great job not only at presenting the complex history of the U.S. in an engaging manner, but also presents excellent research on the topic. The use of quotes from primary sources such as letters and papers lends a professional presence to this podcast. A must-listen, in my opinion. Thanks so much for your kind words, Thashira. And if you're interested in exploring the myths and legends that have their origins with the societies and civilizations of the African continent, I hope you'll give Legendary Africa a listen. Just as I'm doing for Thashira and James, you can also share information about this podcast through your social media or even through word of mouth. Everyone has a history fanatic in their family or circle of friends. Whoever that is for you, why not recommend that they give presidencies a listen? To show my gratitude for all of your support and to leave you with a lighter mood, as this episode got a bit heavy with Hamilton's death, I'm including some outtakes after the outro music that should give you a chuckle. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me through social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. I can't thank you enough for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Federalist had managed to thwart. Federalist had managed to thwart, 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 thwart. Hamilton requested that the Episcopal bitch, <laughs> bishop, 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 as Hamilton was not a regular church church goer, church goer. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, a dot burr. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.